Taking to the skies is a sensation unlike any other. The thrill of breaking free from the Earth's grasp and soaring above it all is intoxicating. Yet every pilot knows that while the sky may be limitless, the cockpit is a sanctuary of precision. Flying isn't about casting off all restrictions. It's a delicate dance between freedom and focus. A pilot doesn't just gaze at the horizon. They diligently monitor their instruments, ensuring that while they may tread new paths in the clouds, they remain safely aloft. These instruments don't restrict, they empower, allowing the pilot to push boundaries with the reassurance that they have the data to guide them. This aerial ballet mirrors the world of B2B SaaS. Pioneering in business is exhilarating, but it's not about blind flights of fancy. To truly soar and innovate, one must have a keen sense of direction, constantly monitoring the critical metrics that signal whether your enterprise is on an upward trajectory or in danger of a nosedive. The sky of success is vast, but just as pilots have their essential instruments, SaaS leaders have their key performance indicators. Enter Phil Alves, a master pilot of the SaaS skies. With a perspective shaped by an unyielding commitment to innovation and grounded in data-driven insights, Phil understands that while the best don't simply follow, they do have their gauges, their instruments that are non-negotiables. To Phil, navigating the turbulent atmosphere of the tech industry is akin to piloting a plane through ever-changing conditions, always ensuring the instruments are in check. In today's episode, we're set to embark on a high-flying journey with Phil, who knows a thing or two about flying planes and building product. We'll dive deep into the world of SaaS, exploring the vital instruments every company must monitor to not only stay in the air, but to soar to unprecedented heights. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Phil Alves speaks with Paddle's Andrew Davies about how the best don't follow. They talk about decision-making and rule-breaking in business, learning from SaaS founders through podcasting, the evolution of market strategies, advice for early-stage SaaS founders, and the six instruments to monitor to keep your product flying. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest's advice. Oh, fantastic to have you on Protect the Hustle. Why don't you just give me a little bit of background about yourself and then also about what you do. Lifelong entrepreneur. I'm about 35 years old now and I start when I was 16. I, I sold a SaaS business when I was very young, built a consulting firm to a pretty big size and, and I'm also working my own SaaS. On the side, besides work, I love flying airplanes. I'm Brazilian and so that's my background. I know the, uh, the normal startup adage is that as you're building a SaaS product, you have to build the airplane while flying it. So let's see if we can mix both of those two skills as we talk through today. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation, Phil, because you've built SaaS products for hundreds of clients. And that's a real skill to be doing that process day in, day out. And most software founders only get to do that once or twice or three times in their career. And yet you've done that a huge number of times. You've got the reps on it. So we're going to dive into some of the learnings from that and then some of the learnings from you then going and building your own SaaS product as well. So tell us a little about bit about DevSquad, and then specifically what you've learned by building SaaS products for so many diverse 
different types of customer. DevSquad it's specializing in helping people build a SaaS product. And so what we do, we give them a team that can help with everything they need. We, we believe there's a problem because most times when people try to outsource, the developers that they hire, they are task level thinking. They don't think in the product level. They don't push back. They are not real partners when you're trying to build a product. So DevSquad, we really try to position ourselves as a consultant, not just people that write code. And, and, and that's kind of like what we do. And, and also one thing, the first thing I learned, it's many times people think they need a tech co-founder. They, they think they need in-house team and they look at how the big companies are set as best practices or the best way to do, like they're setting the rules. But I think what I learned is they cannot play Goliath's game by Goliath's rule. You have to change the rules of the game to make it work for you. So our customers are usually bootstrap people, but they are successful business owners that are on their third or fourth venture. And now they're solving a problem very specific for a market that they know. For example, someone that owns 50 car washes, now it's building a SaaS to run car washes. And he just, he knows so much better about car washes. And he doesn't need to go learn about how to run a development team, what a product manager is. He, he just want to give the vision and then he won't build that product. And, and so I learned that there's like many ways to do. And also sometimes people come to us to build version two of their product. And it's, we look at the product and it's so horribly designed, but it's making like multiple seven figures. It's because they're really solving a real pain point of an underserved market. Those are, are some of the lessons I learned. It, there's a lot of money to be made. And specifically, I feel like in the SaaS companies that want to make only $10 million. There's so many SaaS companies that can make only $10 million because people really want, it's like the $100 million business, but there's like so many $10 million companies to be built and we build multiple of them at Dev Squad. Like very, a lot, a lot of our clients, I would say at least 80% get to seven figures. And then a, a big portion of those customers get to eight figures and they do that because it's not their first time. They do that because they actually have an entrepreneur behind they understand the market. You mentioned bootstrap founders or second or third time founders in other industries as, as a key kind of customer segment. I know you also work for VC-backed startups and for large enterprises. So how does your approach differ when working with those different type of clients. We have to understand like what their goals are and how can we help them to to get to their mission. But also I believe those companies hire us because of how we think about building products. So like when a big enterprise come to hire us, specifically work with a lot of venture departments, the reason they hire us is because we can move quicker with less resources. So they're trying to act scrappy and act bootstrap, even though they are not. They're, that's basically what they're trying to do. How can like, I, I simulate that? And so they come and, and they hire us and we're able to move quicker and with less bureaucracy and with just getting things done quicker um, and moving along. So that's, but one thing that's very different for, for the VC fund companies, it's how fast they, they have to grow and, and how if they are not growing very, very fast, they will eventually be called zombie companies. So the decisions are a little bit different about speed and, and, and about how we, we help them. But usually they say, hey, this and this part of my product, I cannot move forward. Can you move that forward for us? So speed is key when you've got that money burning a hole in your pocket. Talk to me a little bit about the engagement model here, because I know that lots of our listeners will be hearing about your model here and thinking, is it cash? Is it equity? Is it short-term for an MVP? Is it a long-term partnership? Like, What does a normal project look like? 
On average, people are going to stay with us 18 months, but our contracts are month to month and they pay a fixed fee depending on how many resources we assign to them. Every team, the base level is going to have at least a product manager, a QA and two developers. And then from there, we add more developers, we, we add designers and the other pieces that they need. Uh, we like to think in 90 day plans and in terms of OKRs. I believe OKRs are the best way to to like understand where we're trying to go. Meet with our clients every 90 days. The ones that are local in the United States, you actually ask them to to fly to Utah. We have office in Utah and then we spend the whole day doing OKR planning and on roadmap and, and we love also the now, next, later way of doing roadmap. And so we do that and then we work with our customers in, in 90 days increments. So on average, people are going to stay with us 18 months. Usually they will leave when they raise a big series A or series B. And But like companies that want to stay bootstrap, we have customers that have been with us for three, four years. They're like, I just don't want a development team at all. But most of our customers are like, we want to come, go to market, keep developing, keep evolving, but eventually we will bring our own team. And so that's kind of like how the engagement looks like. I will talk down in terms of numbers too. I think that's important people listening. How much does it cost to hire a consulting firm like Dev Squad? People are spending anywhere between 200 and a half a million dollars with us when building their product and keeping it working. So, so it's not cheap, but again, it's not the first or second time founders. The founder that has some money is not super rich, but he does have some money. And then he comes to us to reduce risks because at this point he's very busy and time it's a scarce resource and money is not so much. You know, so so those are the people that we will work with Dev Squad. And it's the same with with big companies. Like for example, like if a venture firm wants to launch a new product, like we work with ADP, build a brand new product for them. They came to us and they're like, here's the product, here's the vision. Go build it for us. And then they took over after like a year and a half. Over a hundred SaaS products built. You must have decent pattern recognition on, you know, the kind of traits of those of the founding team and the traits of the business, the idea, the market. What things have to be true in order for one of these products to work and to grow to that seven or eight figure revenue mark? B2B is usually the first thing. Like they should they have to be in the B2B space, need to be able to charge at least a hundred dollars a month for for their subscription. I see cheaper products having a very hard time. The knowledge of the founder of like the market, knowing the market very well. I would say 80% of the time they're building something that they need themselves. 20% of the time they really went and studied and understood the market very, very, very well. So that makes the whole difference. Just the capability of the, the go-to-market strategy that the founder has to put in place because the first million is very heavily dependent on the founder experience in, in rolling a product to market. I, I think what we do, honestly, the 30%, what we build is 30% of the equation. Like it's, are we solving a problem that people actually have? And how do you know that is usually if you are like the user of that problem. And can you sell that product? I believe like building B2B SaaS product has zero technology risk. That's why you outsource because there's zero technology risk. There's like hundreds of products that have been built. There's a bunch of technology out there. So if you're not like building the next open AI, there's no technology risk. And so if there's no technology risk, that can be outsourced. That's not very important. And then you go work on go-to-market strategy, solving an actual problem that people have. And that comes out to the founder knowledge of that problem. You've obviously got a lot of experience on managing dev teams and the dev process. Talk to me about the learnings and the best practice of how you manage and measure a high-performing dev team. What does it look like? Even I build my own product around that, <laughs> right? I have a product, it's called DevStats. And the first thing was like, how can I benchmark? What is the starting point to know if my team is doing well or not? Because like with working and building 20 to 30 products at once, I wanted to know how well each team that we gave to our customers were. And since the beginning, we, our marketing thing say, we give you high-performing development teams. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? How can we actually give people high-performing development team? I went back and, and I figured out some hard data numbers that, that are true 
across most of high-performing development teams. I didn't make those up. They'll come from researchers from Dora Metrics, Space Metrics. And the main thing is that for me makes a huge difference. It's cycle time, which is how fast the team goes from start of the code to like things in production. Plenty accurate. How well can the team plan? Like if I say I'll do this, how much of what I say I was able to do? Code size, code review size. So like how is small is the code review? I believe code review is the most important ceremony that happens in software development. We think daily, sprint planning, forget all that. The most important thing in software development is code review. It's where the developers are learning, it's where we're guaranteeing the quality of the product. And so the metric that we have to look there is what's the size of the the pull request that's been sent of the code that's being reviewed. And if it's a small, it means that the team is like being able to move in small increments, the real review is being done on that code base. And we look at deploy frequency, how frequent are we actually deploying? And we look change the file rate, how like of everything that I move to production, how much am I breaking? Like the whole move fast and break things by Facebook. I am moving too fast and breaking too many things, but I understand things is gonna break. That being said, I feel like the foundation doesn't start at the numbers. The foundation is start at the culture. At the culture of the team is a team that has open communication. Is a team that doesn't have insecurities because when I'm doing that code review, like if and someone find a problem and, and someone has a suggestion and they're maybe they're less senior than me, so the foundation is culture. The whole thing like culture. It's a strategy for breakfast. I believe in that. And I think the best teams is the teams that have the best culture with open communication, safety, where people can say what they mean and where people are not afraid of looking at hard data. Like most teams are like, we're not going to look at numbers. I'm like, why? Why are you afraid of the numbers? If you look at any professional sports, we know how well a basketball player is doing, how many of the shots they're missing. So that's kind of like what I think it defines a high-performing development team. Planning accuracy, failure rate change, cycle time, deployment frequency, code quality review and rework rate. Those all feel like quant things we can measure. How do you measure culture? How do you measure insecurities and open communications? That's very, very hard to measure. What we are working very hard on that. The ENPS is it's a good start, which is kind of like ENPS, but for employees. So you can kind of see how people are. It comes down to what's in the ground, understanding. I think that's the thing about building products. We want it to be all about data, but at the end of the day, gut, it's still involving everything that we do. It's like the feeling, how, how people feel around your company. And I mean, I can look at the glass door for the company. I can look at other things like that. It's very hard to measure culture. That's why it's the hardest. It's, it's super easy to build a software like DevStats that gives you numbers, but if you don't have a good culture, DevStats is useless for you or any other product similar to DevStats and a developer metric software. Can we take a couple of minutes and just think about each one of those six? Because I find this fascinating. I think our audience will too. So can you take each one of those six and just give me, you know, whether it's a, an, a target you would be aiming for or a comment on how you measure it so that every one of our listeners can have a thought of what they do next with each one of those six? Sure. So let, let's start with planning accuracy. So how, how do you measure planning? How do you measure your accuracy of your planning? And, you know, what's your target there? So our target, it's 80%. Why it's 80%? Because if you want your team to be 100% all the time, you're not leaving any room for mistakes. And people are going to start to like really not push the boundaries. They will start to like only go in for the layups if you go with sport analogies. So you want to give your team some room to, to be wrong and to be like, okay, to be optimist because developers are usually optimist. I believe the target above 80%, you are in a good place. Actually, even 65 to 79, you're not so bad. Anything below 65, 
we have to figure out like we're being too optimistic, what's going on, or are things being at late to sprints? And how we measure it is very simple. We look what we put in the sprint. So we put like 20 cards in the sprints and what we finish of everything that we thought we would finish in the sprint. So we finish 16 of 20. But usually what happens is like things change along the way and cards get added. And then we have to measure that too, like measure the process. How how true are we to our processes? Are we able to actually close the sprint and, and do the things that we thought we would do in that time? And building software is a lot about estimation and, and like making educated guess. We have to get better at those guesses as, as time moving along. And I think that's a super important metric because maybe our team is doing very, very, very well. And they're like super, super good. But you're communicating wrong. And expectation management is the one of the main things that you have to do to keep everyone happy. Your team might be delivering more than 99% of the team, but your planning access is 50% and you're getting everyone mad at you because you cannot communicate what you can actually do even though I, we haven't seen that, like all the other metrics are amazing. They deploy every day. The cycle time is 24 hours. The team is actually kicking butt, but they're super bad at communicating. And so, and that's causing everyone to be mad at that team. So that's why planning access is a metric that's very important. Let's go to the next one then, cycle time. How do you measure cycle time and what's a good aim? There's two kinds of cycle time. There's PR cycle time, the pull request. So like for when the developers start a branch, work on that branch to when they get merged. And there's the issue cycle time, which is we have like this whole feature plan from when that feature starts in progress to when that future got to done. So we measure that looking at the GitHub data and the Jira data, and then we have those two numbers. And, and that's very important because you start to see, for example, where are things getting stuck? Are things stuck in code review? They're waiting like days to code to, to for us to do code review. Are things getting stuck in QA? Or And also you start seeing if it's too big, like are we biting more than we can chew? So the cycle time is supposed, oh, we're spending days coding, but then like later it's hard to do the code review, it's hard for QA. That's why I believe cycle time is the most important metric of any development team and then the shorter you can make that the best and then let's talk about where the benchmarks are i think you need to be below five days with the issue cycle time so everything that you put on your board as soon goes to progress i want to be done in less than five days and with the pr cycle time I track the hours and I, I think good number is like less than 42 hours you have to be finishing your PRs and then the way that works if, if you sign up and look at my product we give you the whole benchmark right away you log in and you can see where you stand in each of those six items let's quickly do the other ones then so code quality review how do you measure that well actually the matter code review size because we just measure the number of lines of codes per review that we're doing and but then we go deeper a little bit we measure how many issues we caught how many reviews how many comments we wrote because Sometimes people are doing code review or they're just clicking the green button. If you're not catching any issues, what code review is actually being done? So those are the things that we're measuring uh, when it comes to, to code review. And the smaller it is, the better you want it to be under 200 lines of code to be in a good place. And then failure rate change. How many times you actually have to do a hotfix? Something that broke in production and you have to submit a hotfix. What's the percent of the time of other deploys that you do, they're a hotfix. That number, we want it to be under 15%. Again, I think it's gonna happen if your team is moving quick enough, fix is gonna break in production. It's just the nature of building, moving quick. If never have a problem in production, you're moving too slow. If you're having 20, 30, 50% of issues of change of value rate, then you're moving too quick. Then you have to take a, a, a step back and then look at how can we move maybe a little bit slower where things are breaking the process. So yeah, so change the failure rate, it's a very important metric to know like of how well your team is moving and how many times things are actually breaking. So rework rate. Rework rate, the way that that one works, it's like how there's rework and there's refactor. Refactor is good, rework is bad. 
refactor, it brings changes that to the code that you wrote that it's like less than 20 days old. So you just wrote it, you got to work and awesome, not left from refactor, moving this here, here, just so it's more organized for the next person. Rework is code that you did and after 20 days or 30 days, you have to go and do it again. And that usually means there was something wrong in product. That usually means that we didn't know what we're actually supposed to build because we're just changing things that we already built. That's where rework rate is it's important to, to track. Is also none of those metrics alone should mean that your team is doing bad because you have to understand the big picture. And real work, I think, is the biggest one about sometimes you're doing a big pivot or sometimes you're early on in the process. And so it's okay to have a bunch of real work in, in certain stages, but it's also a metric that's good to, to be looking at. Bring us home. Is the only one we've missed deployment frequency? Yes. Deployment frequency. That's very high-performing teams like GitHub, they deploy every single day. So how how often are you deploying new things to production? Of course, that depends also on the size of your team and, and the mature of your team and the mature of your tools. I believe feasible metric for any SaaS product, it's at least once a week. We are a strong position if you can deploy new things at least once a week. You're a very strong position if you can deploy like once every day or, or multiple times a day. Deploy is so important because that's the actual value that you're delivering your customers. How many times I'm actually giving new value uh, to the customer. So that's a metric that I really like. Well, I appreciate you diving into those because I think it, it's really helpful for both engineering leaders who are experienced, but also for founders who perhaps haven't worked with engineering teams much before, because those metrics are things that you can know, understand and, and measure. So really, really, really helpful. Maybe if we just back right out again now and think about some of the trends you're seeing. So you've been doing this for a while now. What are the changes you have seen in the SaaS industry and the B2B SaaS products you're building? What are you seeing coming around the corner over the next uh, over the next couple of years? How have things changed from when you started to now? Building SaaS product is getting easier and easier. The tools that we have to build SaaS products allow us to move quicker and we don't have to solve the problems that were already solved for us years ago. Like for example, payment could be a problem or login or so building a SaaS product is getting easier and easier. And I see that what happens to customers expect more and more. The whole thing of, hey, they're going to lose broken product, only if the market is very, very underserved, where we don't see so many underserved markets anymore. So I feel like the level of quality of products they have to build is also high. And that's kind of like some of the changes that I see. I also see more and more companies experiment on with product-led, which it's, it's amazing. I love it. But it's, there's also a lot of risks that come in from there. You have to be so much better onboarding. You have to be so much better delivering value up front. And that's like was one of the hardest things for me building my SaaS product because I wanted people to log in and get value. That was the whole thing with like figuring out this benchmark. You're going to log in, you're going to connect, I'm going to give you a benchmark. From there, you're going to go deeper. But I see more and more companies going product-led, and, and I see, I think that's going to keep being in attendance in the years to come. So I find it fascinating that you've been building SaaS products for other people and then have now launched your own one. And there's that old uh, Spanish proverb that says, the cobbler's children have no shoes. So you know, did you follow all of your own best practice when you launched DevStats? And what differed? <laughs> I did not. Before I talk about the best practices I didn't follow, I think best practice is the wrong name for best practice because the best really don't follow best practice. Think about investing. People tell you, hey, buy index funds, but Warren Buffett buy single stock, and that's how he got rich. Or like, I like racing cars. Everyone tells you, hey, keep with the racing line and that's going to go fast. But then you go look at Lewis Remington and he does everything different. He doesn't follow any race line. Or everyone talks about customer research and Steve Jobs did zero customer research. So I believe best practices are a great foundation for you to be in a safe place. And you really have to understand them deeply. And so the, the best practices I told my customers to follow, I understood them deeply. But I decided to not follow some of them because 
I could understand the trade-offs that I was doing. By doing that, I, I feel like I put my product in a different position. One thing that I tell every single customer, let's build a tool before you build a platform. Let's go to market quick and let's start getting paid as soon as we can. And that's normal advice for anyone building a product. Like every single investor tell you that. When I decided to build my product, I did different. I built the whole product before I wasn't in a rush. It took me two years to get the first paying customer. But why I did that, it's because I understood the reason why you move very fast, because you're likely going to run out of money. Now, with a very consulting firm over very successful consulting firm over here, I knew I would not run out of money. I wanted to go to the market with a product that was more established. And another thing I also tell my customers, do not be a beta tester. Use well-established technologies. There's a lot of risk in using a technology that, that's new, that's not well-established. They might die and I never build a product for a customer of us with any new technology. When I went to build my own product, we're a big part of the Laravel uh, kind of like ecosystem, and there was a new product coming out, which was Livewire, Laravel Livewire, and it was a powerful product that allowed you to build like a monolithic application and not having to use any of the JavaScript framework, and, and I decided to use that product, and that was a big risk. That product could, could stop being produced, and, and a lot of other things could happen, but I just look at it, and I thought, hey, I really understand software, and I think this is going the right direction, but most times, people there are like, following trends don't have enough knowledge to realize if that trend is going to stay there or not or what kind of value that's going to add. You just follow trends because that's what's hot. And so that's why the best practice of not following trends is going to definitely protect you. But I was like, hey, this is the knowledge that I want to go. And, and version 3 just came out and it's powerful and we're going to you know, allow us to move super quick. And it was, a, it was a good decision. I also tell people, stick with one market. And my product is available in Brazil and is available in the United States. Again, I understand both markets very well. And I decided I'll go with both markets. Yeah, so those, those are some of the rules that I was like, I tell everyone to follow. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to follow them. But it's because I understand the best practice. It's not just I'm going to follow because, you know. So the best don't follow best practice. I like it. You also run a, run a podcast, right? You know, I think it's the SaaS origin stories podcast. Every SaaS hero has an origin story. So I love the process of interviewing people like we're, we're speaking here and what I can learn from it. So you must have learned a bunch from the SaaS founders you've been interviewing. What are some of those common themes or insights you've uncovered while interviewing SaaS founders on your podcast? The main thing that comes to mind, it's like what you hear usually when you are reading like the most popular websites and I speak with people actually doing, it's what worked two years, three years ago. And the market is very quickly changing. So with the podcast, I was able to interview SaaS founders, but I also get like strategies that was working today and strategies that were making sense. And so was it because of my podcast that also I decided to take so longer, so much longer to build the version one of my product because I interviewed multiple people that did that. And then I start, why didn't you do that? Oh yeah, that was my third, fourth company. I knew I could support I did because of, I was just changing the rules of the games. So like, it's cool with my SaaS podcast to see how different founders follow a very different way to build. There's not like one single, this is the best way to do stuff. You know, so that's the, the main thing I learned, interviewing other SaaS founders and learning about their origin stories. We've got an audience of thousands of SaaS founders and, and go-to-market leaders, and a whole bunch of them will be very early stage. They may be a bootstrapped and are building their first or maybe their second, second SaaS product. Let's close out with some advice for them. So you're now their consultant sitting in front of them. They're kind of planning their MVP. What are your cautionary words of advice and words of wisdom for them as they plan their next few months and maybe you know hire their first engineer and think about how they build this MVP and take it to market. The number one thing that I, I help a lot of people when 
in consulting is to come out of their big picture vision to what is the tactical things that we have to do to take to, to get to our first million. And they might be very different because founders they like, this is not going to go to 10 to 100. Well, that's awesome. But we need to come down. Like how, what is the, what's going to work for us to make the first million? You have to think a little bit more short term. And, and I think a lot of founders sometimes don't understand that. And, and the things that you do, each stage of your business is very, very different. That's the whole reason for my podcast too, is because like we look at what big companies are doing today and you want to emulate that. That's a bad idea. You need to look at what they did when they were smaller. And maybe you emulate that. And so my whole thing is like asking about the origin stories because you can see what people did when they had to be scrappy or or like in the very, very early days. What we do in the early days is very different than what you do when you're bigger. And I'll just tell founders, there's, you have to realize that. And you, going back to that concept, and you also cannot fight Goliath following his rules. You're going to always lose. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to create your own rules. <laughs> so, There's been so much in this conversation for we're going to be able to pull out a, a whole bunch of insight for our, for our audience here. Are there any final thoughts before we close this you would like to leave with? I don't think so. <laughs> That's great. We've covered so much. This is super helpful. And I love the, the ability you've got just to go straight into the answers. Actually, maybe is it okay if there is like a call to action to my product? Like, right? I'd like to invite everybody to go benchmark your development team, go to that stats.com sign up and connect your git repository your jira and you're going to be able to in less than 30 minutes benchmark your product we're not going to ask a credit card front or, or anything and you and you're going to see where you stand so i just would like to invite out everyone listening to the show to to do just that and let me know what you think about the product fantastic thank you so much phil shout out to phil for being on the show today we talked about decision making and rule breaking in business learning from SaaS founders through podcasting the evolution of market strategies, advice for early stage SaaS founders, and the six instruments to monitor to keep your product flying. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.